Hi everyone, good evening and welcome to the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. I'm Alison Lassick of ACCA's Public Programs and thanks for joining us for the second of our In Conversations for New 16. Tonight, curator Annika Christensen will be in conversation with Jacobus Capone, Anna Verendoff, Gabriella Hurst and Mason Kimber. Um, and if you have any questions, please save them up for the end. I'll come around with the mic. But for now, I will hand straight over to Annika, who will be hosting this conversation. Thanks, Ali. Um, so for those of you who were here tonight, last night, you'd know that last night we spoke to the absurdists. So if there's anything that we're kind of categorising these guys together, I guess you're the romantics, for want of a better word. <laughs> um, so we've got Gabriella Hurst, Mason Kimber, Anna Varendorf and Jacobus Capone, whose works collectively examine ideas of memory, history, proximity and intimacy, as well as the relationship that, between the art object and the audience and the relationship between the art, art and the architectural surrounds of the gallery. So Gabriella, I wanted to start with you um, and your grand kind of romantic gesture of attempting to paint a storm while you're in the middle of one. We had a really nice moment during install when you came up to me and you asked me, how do I pronounce the title of my work, which is Force Majeure? And it's a, it's a term that she'd borrowed from her artist contract, which um, essentially just kind of means a superior force or an unavoidable accident. And it wasn't until that moment during install that I'd realised that that word had kind of sparked the idea for the project. And so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how the idea came about. Um. So there were multiple, thank you very much, Annika, for having, <laughs> yeah, everything. And um, yeah, there were multiple ways in which this, this idea kind of came around. And um, to start with, th there was definitely this looking at the artist contract and it was the most serious document I think I've ever signed. And there was this one kind of like absurd clause in it that said, um, you would not be liable for not being for not being in the show, in the case of a an act of God, including a flood, a storm, an earthquake, etc. And it, it just it just sounded kind of ridiculous, and so I kind of clung onto that as a little piece of humour in this very serious document. So there was that kind of going around in the back of my head, but actually, um, the other things that spurred on this work was a bunch of research that I was doing. Um, one of them, one I've been cherry picking from um, different historical figures and different parts of their stories that I can kind of incorporate into this mismatched uh, figure to perform under the guise of, in, in a sense. And one of them is this Russian painter called Ivan Ivazovsky from the 1800s who painted, from the 18th century, who supposedly painted uh, 6,000 paintings in his life most of which were of storms, and almost all of which were painted in the calm of his studio in Theodosia in, in Crimea at that time. So, I mean, it makes sense to be grouping us all under as romantics. I couldn't imagine a more romantic image than some old man in his studio remembering storms that he may or may not have ever seen um, and meticulously painting them. Uh, so there was, there was that, and there, there have been some other historical figures who I've who I've used as jumping points for this work. But actually, the, I've been thinking about this a lot, and um, one thing that really spurred me on in this work is, a question, is from an artist talk that I saw um, in Russia two years ago with a, an artist called um, Nikita Kadan. Do you know this artist? I think you have mentioned her yeah, to me. Okay. Yeah. 
Um, and he's a Ukrainian artist, and he was very involved in the Maidan protests. And sorry, what did I, I just corrected myself because I said she. But yeah, okay. <laughs> 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 Never mind. Um, and um, he. He was very involved in the Maidan protests, and he made this work afterwards called Fortress, uh, which is which is a video work that is compiled of a lot of footage that was like news broadcasting footage from this time in history, um, in very recent history, paired with um, uh, an explanation of, of the fortress system in medieval times. And he was asked during this speech, "Why didn't you use actual?" footage that you took at that time, and he said he didn't take any footage at that time, or he didn't make anything, uh, any artwork at that time, because in the midst of this time of destruction and chaos and upheaval, it was no time for art. And this really got me thinking about when, what is the buffer that is needed between the person who is making, especially the, in this romantic sense of, of creating something romantic, um, and the destructive force that they're potentially trying to capture. Um, so this was one of the things, and maybe the force majeure is, is the, the buffer or something that will stop you from actually making something. Sure, so just, I mean, I guess following on from stopping you from making something, that idea of failure I think is really important for us to talk about in relation to your work. And of course, new being a commissions exhibition, there is always the potential for failure. There's kind of the potential of maybe not having an idea in time, or even if you've hit that idea, realising the way, the work in the way that you want to in time. And I think failure particularly is important in relation to your work, because what you're seeing at the end point is a really lengthy process, and actually Gabriella your work kind of really sort of want, set out to kind of um, examine ideas of hope and hopelessness and perhaps some of those moments of hopelessness became, became quite strong in that <laughs> yeah. process. And so I wondered if you could sort of just elaborate on that a bit for those of us who, for, those, for the audience who hasn't seen that process. Uh, I was going through our emails today, trying to kind of do some like thought archaeology and um, I, I've been living in Berlin the last two years and um, the work that I made was made overseas and I was supposed to come back in November. For, um, there was another show in a first draft that I was doing with Annika and um, I emailed her being like maybe I'm not going to be back in time for that show because I hadn't caught the storm, I hadn't made it and she was like no problem, stay there, stay there and <laughs> chase the storm. Um, that was in like November. <laughs> I tried for a really long time. It was a simple idea which was to, to get this image of, of attempting to paint this storm within a storm. And the actual process of doing that, I guess I'd, I'd, I'd planned this failure I'd, and the failure came back and proved, proved to me that you can't do that, that you'll be thwarted. And so, in put, put simply, you cannot trust a weather app. Um, <laughs> it's very expensive <laughs> to try and trust a weather app. I, I went to the west coast of France um, to this uh, artist colony where a lot of Australian artists had gone to paint, um, which is now no longer functions called Etape. Um, to go and attempt to paint a storm there. Um, I went up to Rügen, which is where the final footage was shot on three separate occasions. Um, 
And either there would be just really lovely, beautiful weather, um, or on one specific occasion there was torrential rain and the, the video got covered in water and you can't see what's happening. And so the question kind of became through all of these endless, endless attempts, well, endless, it was about 15, felt endless, um, whether I make the work about my failure to represent my failing to represent, or whether I kind of keep it simple and, and work with, with what I felt was kind of the successful failure, which is the image of what I originally went out to, to achieve. And um, I've kind of come up with a middle ground which is having the paintings, which show some of the some of the attempts. Um, yeah. So, but in light of all this failure and in, in light of all this romance, this a review came out in the Age today that referred to your work as hilarious, and I wondered <laughs> if you thought of the project as such when you were doing it, or if that was something that kind of only appeared when we sort of saw it projected and realised that, you know, this romantic gesture did was quite funny actually in the end. Um, when I had the image in my head, the, at first the idea was that I would be painting in a rainstorm, and that's why I'm painting in watercolour, because I liked the idea that the rain would wash off anything that I represented and with, with the watercolour medium, and, and I would keep trying to paint it, and it would just wash it off. Um, and uh, I'm sorry, I completely forgot the question. Did you think the work was funny when oh, you were yeah. looking at it? <laughs> And yeah, and I remember having that thought about that image of what I wanted with my studio buddy in Berlin and us both being like, ah, it's going to be really funny. And then throughout the process of actually making it and the, the, the like costs increasing of these trips to this like godforsaken island in Germany and, and the disappointment of just going there and waiting and then like getting sick and just the endless actual struggle of representation, which was the struggle of representation on a filmic sense as opposed to, a, to an actual a painting sense, it became really unfunny. And so it was kind of a nice full circle to have it up and to be in there and see people laughing because it did remind me that this is light work. It had become so heavy in the, in the actual making of the work um, throughout the actual failures that got me in, in the process of doing it. But um, yeah, it still came as a little bit of a shock when he said, like, this hilarious artwork. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's an interesting interpretation. Yeah. But it's definitely, there is some humour there, I think. Um, you've spoken as well about the art historical influences. So you've mentioned Ivan Iveskovsky, and of course you filmed the, this particular footage on Rügen, which is where Caspar David Friedrich went to paint the sublime in the 1800s. And so I wondered if this kind of canon of art history felt like a weight as a young artist. Um, that's an interesting question. Uh, in what sense of weight? Well, I mean, are you, I guess you're not, I, I read it as you're not attempting to situate yourself within this canon, but you're kind of wrestling against it in a way. You know, there's these things that have preceded you. There's obviously like an idea of futility, like you're aware of the creative act potentially being destroyed by the storm, but also as a young person, maybe making work that perhaps that might be futile as well. I mean, you don't know what the future holds or if your work will be remembered. I mean, you've talked about Izo Ray, who was who a was female forgotten. impressionist painter yeah. whose work had been forgotten. And I think so, that's more yeah. it. It's, the, it's, the, it's not actually the weight of these individual artists and what they've done. It's the, it's the kind of absurdity and the weight and the contradiction of um, the Western canon being based on um, 
objects, not necessarily objects, of course, but um, art things of permanence and the fact, the, the idea of like endurance in, in the art object and how that comes to symbolize the individual mark. And, and there is this kind of, whether you make ephemeral work, whether you make an, a painting, whether you, whatever you're making in, in, the, in this kind of occidental art sense, there is this idea of endurance. Was it Eva Hess who said that something about the, the value of an artwork is based on its endurance? And we can try and shuffle away from that um, but as long as we're recording something, there is still, that still lingers very much in the art tradition. And it, there, there's a weight there that... Um, I, I did become very fascinated with this artist, Iso Ray, who is um, an Australian Impressionist who lived in a tarp in um, the end of the 1800s. Yeah, it was just before World War I, actually, she lived there. And in World War I, she was the only artist who stayed in this artist colony, this romantic artist colony of that time of realists. Um, whereas, so whereas all, is, all of the other artists, including Fox, including many other artists whose names I've forgotten, mostly male, disappeared, she and her sister stayed there and continued to paint what was happening. And I found out about her because um, there was a call out at the NGV for this exhibition called Australian Impressionists in France looking for one of her paintings. And I don't think they ever found it because very few of her paintings actually still exist. And she's one of these artists who almost was lost into the, the void of history, like every, almost like everyone does. And except like a tiny bit of her remained in, in this cultural canon. And I was just kind of interested in this tension that l lies in us maintaining things and trying to preserve things. And if that is a weight and whether you can ever really throw it off and be an artist. Um, yeah, so that, I hope that answers your question. It does, thanks. Mason, let's move to you, because like Gabriella has sort of incorporated art historical references in her work, your work similarly shows influences of various kind of cultural or historical or architectural movements. And so I wondered what the biggest influence has been on your practice as a painter. Yeah, thanks, Annika. Well, it's it definitely interesting when you pause there, Gabriella, thinking about, you know, is there a pressure of a weight because um, my main influence, if you see the work, is um, fresco painting from Italy. And I definitely felt the weight of that. Um, because it is, well, fresco painting, um, you could trace back as the original painting in caves and things like that. So instantly you've got this sort of lineage all the way to the beginning of painting. So dealing with that and, and thinking, oh, I'm going to use the fresco uh, techniques. How am I going to add something new to thousands and thousands of years, years of people doing the same thing, um, I definitely felt that weight. Um, yeah. Um, but, you know, that was a challenge as well to, to develop something new to the medium that would excite me and uh, a new way of working, which, yeah, which excited me. So just to give some context, Mason uh, did a residency at the British School in Rome in 2008, was it? It was very recently, 2000, 2014. 2014, where did I get eight from? Uh, and that's where that kind of interest in frescoes came from. But I think he'd been interested in architecture before that, um, and where did that interest come from? Yeah, I, I, um, only looking back now can I sort of see a link between my interests, and I think it comes from growing up in Perth. Uh, my dad had this house built that was a kind of um, feature, almost like a, um, a show-off piece of a house. It was more for entertaining. Um, it was this architect who did it. It was his first residential project. He'd done all commercial buildings before that. 
Um, so it was kind of it was this architectural statement using really bold, clear geometric shapes and forms, and this kind of like half river running underneath it. And um, it was more more for like to be published in a book rather than to live in. And only looking back now, I sort of realised that these kind of open spaces and, and weird forms, when you're spending your formative years in a, in a, um, a house like that, it has this kind of um, subconscious effect um, on the way you sort of visualise space and also visualise or the way you think about memories because obviously the house is a, a strong holder of memories and of childhood. Um, and this house was so clean and like just pure that... I felt like it didn't, it didn't hold a memory in a way. Um, so that kind of, that interest has been going with me um, forward, looking at space and memory um, and the idea that um, perhaps, you know, uh, looking at your house, you could, you could visualise perhaps the house you grew up in and, and walk through different rooms and, and think about what was in the room and the little objects in the room. Maybe they could help you recall events and memories. So thinking about space, space as a holder for memory. Sure. Um, so obviously your work is hung on a wall mural as well, and I think that interest in murals is also something that probably came out of your time in Rome. Um, can you talk a little bit about this one for Acker is slightly maybe more geometric than the ones that you've done before? It relates to the architecture of the building itself. Can you talk a little bit about the design process that you went through in kind of conceiving of it? and also how you felt on the first day of install when you sort of just looked up at that giant eight-metre wall and knew that you had to do something with it. Yeah, I keep um, telling all my friends in Sydney, you know, it's a really big wall. They just say, oh, you know, yeah, OK, I get it. But, <laughs> but then when I put a, I sent a photo of a scissor lift and, you know, how high it goes up, it's like, oh, that is really... Uh, it's a big wall to deal with. Um, and I decided to do a, a wall mural because another aspect of fresco painting um, was... You know, the, the purpose of frescoes was to open up a sort of narrative window um, using painterly illusion to this sort of space that might exist beyond, beyond the wall. And that was the kind of the, the commissioning goal of fresco artists. And so I wanted to play with that idea. With this wall, maybe there could be a kind of window playing, um, but this kind of naive window as well. Fresco artists, this is a pre-Renaissance, they hadn't figured out how to fully show the illusion of depth. So this wall is quite simple and geometric, uh, referring to sort of simple, bold lines. And a lot of these uh, old frescoes, I'm, I'm referring to like Pompeii, um, they use quite sort of bold geometric compositional forms. So I tried to riff off that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about um, the process of making the frescoes as well? Because I think that's really interesting for those of us who aren't painters and just the kind of science behind what goes into making it. Mm. Yeah, well, another thing about fresco is um, it's, well, it means fresh in Italian, uh, which is basically refers to painting on the plaster or into the plaster while it's still fresh, while, it's, while you've just uh, mixed it. So um, in Italy, they use a li uh, lime, high calcium lime plaster um, because the Italian hills have this sort of calcium content. Uh, and you mix it with an aggregate, which is sand, uh, and then you apply it to a surface, which would usually be a wall, and you've got uh, about eight hours drying time, depending on the weather, before it, the, the gap of the fresco closes. So it has to be done fresco fresh. Um, so I, I tried to sort of mimic that idea, but on a wooden panel uh, and a sort of smaller scale. Um, but what it does is it forces you to make these sort of um, very radical decisions because you've got this time frame and there's no other real painting process that you know, a, a gap closes through time like that. 
Um, usually painting is, a, is a considered something that you can rework, um, perhaps not watercolour, but um, definitely oil on canvas or things like that. So this was a sort of force, you, you're forced to make compositional and formal decisions uh, if, the, if the image wasn't, isn't working by the eighth hour. And you can really feel, um, you can feel the, the, the plaster drying up. You can, you can physically feel that it's not letting you paint it anymore. It's kind of this like real um, tactile thing that um, it's going, no, I'm not going to accept the paint anymore. I'm trying up. You better, you know, whatever you're going to do, do it now because <laughs> I'm not having any more of your paint. Um, and because it's a chemical reaction that happens with the paint and the fresco and uh, it becomes one with it. So, so you've sort of, it's like a, a door sort of slowly closing. You have to run through the door <laughs> before it shuts. So. It's a literal fusion of art and architecture. Right. Um, Anna, similarly to Mason, your work examines the relationship between art and the space in which it's shown, as well as the encounter with the audience. What was your motivation for creating a work that allowed the viewer to endlessly reconfigure the gallery space? Um, my motivation in, in inviting that interaction, uh, I, I always believed, was because I, I wanted to share that space um, from, as a continuum from my practice as a jeweller, which is a, a preoccupation of, um, of shared responsibility for the object once it's been made between the wearer. The, the, the artist gifts this object to the wearer or they purchase it or whatever it is, but then the wearer is responsible for the display of the object. So I always felt that I was trying to, I believe that I was trying to do that. And then I realized maybe six months ago, I'm completely fearful of organizing a work in a gallery space and being responsible for its layout. So I think subconsciously <laughs> my formula was to relieve myself of this responsibility. <laughs> but, but it's true, my intention has always been to mirror the, the experience of the, the gifted object as you have in a jewellery practice. And I think that's a really nice relationship, something that Lisbeth um, Denveston, uh, Anna has commissioned a, a jeweller as a writer for her text on the catalogue, and she really talks about how jewellery, more than other disciplines, relies upon a wearer to truly bring that object into being. Mm. And similarly, your works very much rely on the audience to kind of animate or activate them, which I think is like a really nice, interesting relationship. But of course, you also work with collaborators you have in the past, and for this particular work, you've also kind of opened it up to a collaboration with the sound artist, Hamer Marriott. Can you talk a little bit about um, the process of collaborating and what different disciplines can bring to your work? Um, I collaborate regularly with, I've collaborated with Hamer Marriott, who is the sound artist on this work several times, but I've collaborated with many other people too, and I find it a completely enriching process I sound so full of virtue saying that but it's hard to collaborate with people like you come up against these um, you know accidents like you can collaborate with close friends I regularly work with close friends and still within this close friend you'll find a bit of grit a, that is in opposition to something that you feel decisive about and no doubt vice versa and so you you start to gather a language of compromise um, and maybe optimism so that you can move through these moments of natural tension when you're trying to work on a single idea with another person um, that reveals something you didn't know was coming. And that's just, it's just exhilarating. Like, I've, yeah, I just love that process. It's, you know, you set yourself up for this outcome, so you hope that you'll have that moment where they cause you or you cause them to have this breakthrough, but it's so great when it comes. Um, and of course the sound component is sort of activated when you come into proximity with the work mm -hmm. and I really wanted to talk about 
proximity and touch because your work is such a tactile experience mm. and you also have a braille wall label. So the kind of encounter that you have with your work isn't necessarily one that's very common in a visual arts gallery. Mm. And I just wondered where this interest in touch has come from. Well, I... Um you know, I'm a jeweller, so obviously the object is on the body. It's, it's um, you know, you feel you're in, in touch with its physicality the whole time. And I find that like a, a, like a very um, enchanting part of making jewellery. But in terms of the object in a greater space, um, it's exciting. Like you can, I feel like people are sort of, uh, they ha they're, there's a moment where you don't expect it to make sound if you touch it and you don't expect the shadows to play out in this hugely um, responsive way when you move an object. And then when you realise that it's doing that, you sort of have this uh, second-guess moment where you can reevaluate the objects around you. So it's that sort of extrapolated experience of yourself in relation to other objects that I am um, in pursuit of, I guess. Um, Jakobus, your work, Volta, also similarly deals with proximity, but in a different way. Um, it's a very personal relationship that you've explored between yourself and your father. And I wondered if you could just explain the project in your own words. Okay. Well, it's... Um, Annika presented, like, a fantastic opportunity to actually see not so much a resolution as a, a final recognition of a process that I'd already begun with my father that was um, attempting to explore this period in our lives where he suffered severe depression when I was 11 and it lasted in its fullest extent for about a decade. So it was all throughout my adolescent period and I'd always felt really uneasy about the situation because we were psychologically absent from each other's lives and we're on really good terms now but whenever the past is brought up it's always brought up with this sense of weight and burden and it's really difficult to navigate those years and it was something that I always wanted to kind of release or relieve the weight of and because we live in such close proximity there was a while ago when I asked him if he would be because he's well versed in playing the piano accordion. He used to play it since he was a teenager and I, I've always wanted to learn a musical instrument. So I was asking him for quite a while if he would be willing to teach me and he stopped playing at the onset of depression and hadn't played it right up till now, till 18 years. And he was always very reluctant saying, well, I would have to relearn how to play it. And I saw him relearning how to play in isolation as a nice bridge for both of us to kind of cross together to, to analyse those years, not necessarily in spoken terms, but to spend time together, me just being there with him, watching him, being in the same space, sharing a space together. And it kind of, it was an organic process that happened for almost the whole of last year where I invited him to my studio to, to play and then I began to ask him if it would be okay if I could document him via video and he was okay with that. And it just, it built this stockpile of footage that I didn't know how to deal with or share. And when Annika presented this opportunity, it felt like a nice way for me to actually go into it more thoroughly myself and to sort through it, to see what it meant to, to both of us. But it was this communal space, I think, that was... It wasn't necessarily an unburdening as more of an acknowledgement of the people that we are now and kind of joyfully engaging with, with each other, not through spoken dialogue, just 
as a space together. And yeah, it was, it was a beautiful process to undergo purely because he picked up the piano accordion the same way he left it. So it was totally untuned and there was this real delicate, fragile nature to begin with that then reached a turning point halfway through filming where he went on to just openly, just went on this open monologue, not towards me, but just to himself, like recounting like what actually happened in the turning point in his life. And after that happened, there was this joyful turn of like him starting to play more, maybe not necessarily more fluently, but you could sense there was more confidence and the songs that he began to start playing were a lot lighter than what he begun with. And was there a significance to the song he is currently, the Kesara, or was that something that you only discovered after you started making the work? Yeah, it was the one that he kept playing for the first four months of trying to relearn it because it was the most simplest chord for him. But then when I started researching the song, there's various versions of it. But looking at the, the chorus primarily, like whatever will be, will be, was poetically fitting for what we were both undertaking together. And I mean, the, the melancholy and nostalgia attached to the chords that are being played just resonated perfectly. Um, and the two of you had worked together before in 2010 at Pika in Perth, where yep. you did a performative work, Nine Prayers for Palomar. Yep. Do you see that as a precursor to this work? Yeah, definitely. That was, that was a major work trying to translate a book by Italo Calvino, but there was this one chapter that dealt with the, the separation between the older generation and the newer generation, and I found... That was an in, especially in 2010, when our relationship was just starting to come back together. And for some reason, I just there was this sensation of wanting to harness and embrace our fragility as much as I could. And the work manifested as a two-day performance where I listened to his heartbeat for a day of the gallery's opening hours, and then he listened to my heartbeat the following day. But there was this fragmentation in terms of being in a gallery context performing and having an audience witness and I guess in that sense I didn't like the term performing because I just saw it as a natural gesture that we both wanted to undertake together but it was kind of undone because it was this weird dynamic where you are there's this segregation between audience and artists or people that are generally performing that is hard to kind of break down to make it more organic and it didn't for me it didn't really do what I wanted it to as a work and so I wanted to reinvestigate it but a lot more sensitively for both of us as opposed to what it might give to the audience. Um, like Mason I think you share a sort of interest in cinematic history or at least in kind of documenting or preserving this kind of memory. Um, and of course that previous work was a performance, whereas this is maybe more a video, I mean, a, or a video of a performance. And I wondered how, from your point of view, you thought of the work, um, how you would sort of situate or describe that and how you sort of thought that fitted into your broader practice. Uh, this is, it's dramatically different from anything else that I'd, I have done. And I prim primarily look at the work as a process and the video kind of being an artifact or residue from that shared experience together. And in that regard, in terms of installing it, all I could kind of, and with the footage as well, dealing with it, it was kind of looking at my own relationship with the fragments and kind of 
building not necessarily a narrative but interlinking these moments that I found joy and resonance with that I could attempt to communicate to the audience for them to engage with it. And so there's a lot of fragmentation in terms of clips cutting in and out, him coming within focus with out of focus, and obviously the two screens kind of dividing the space with the opportunity to kind of circle either or. And I guess, yeah, I'm not, I'm, I come from more of a performative background, so I didn't view it as cinematic. I just kind of, I wanted to capture the rawness and the time frame as well, the time length of the two videos mimics like a session that we would have actually sat and recorded together as well. Which I think is a really nice, important note to kind of end on that you've sort of edited it down these six months into one session. So kind of just the pro progress of time um, and the way that kind of, I guess, any kind of unburdening, not that you were calling it that, but kind of gives way to a form of understanding or frustration gives way to satisfaction when your father kind of relearns or refamiliarizes himself with once familiar keys. But thank you. Um, so now might be a good time to open up to the floor for questions if anyone would like to ask. Thank you. Uh, Gabriella, I would just like to ask you where the f footage that we see was actually taken. Was it in Spain or was it in France? Northern Germany. In Northern Germany. In right. And how long were you out in that storm? Um, in this one? Yes. Uh, about 40 minutes. Were you frightened? Um, not really. I mean, it looked like you were going to go over the edge. <laughs> I was frightened. <laughs> it was very exhilarating, but no, I mean, it's, it was not super dangerous. Like, it was, um, I was wearing a wetsuit underneath. I don't know if I'm ruining. No, it's, it's your work. The illusion. <laughs> Give it all away. But, um, but that wouldn't have helped you against the rocks or falling down. No, but it's, it's actually, I mean, it's, it's not as dangerous as it, as it comes across. I mean, sure, something could have... It's nothing more dangerous than I'm sure all of you did as teenagers. So we all survived this far, so it's all okay. <laughs> no, it's, it's like a steep hill. It doesn't just end right there, it kind of like slopes down. It was a good illusion. Sorry? It was a very good illusion. Thank you. Actually, there was a, um, there's, another, there's another clip that I shot when I got back here because I kept trying to look for bigger storms to paint in this. Um, I shot one when I came back to Sydney, where I'd live, and um, I moved back in with my parents, and my mother was shooting it for me. So this one I shot myself. I, like, strapped it to a tree, but in other ones I had other people shoot for me. And um, my... My mother was shooting this one, and it's on the edge of the cliffs at Curl Curl, if anyone knows Sydney. Curl Curl. It's like a big rock face. And um, there's these big waves that are, it had been this big electrical storm, but the, the lightning had passed, and there was just big waves coming. And these big waves were coming up and like washing over. And the, I, had, I liked the idea that it would wash the canvas clean. And um, at one point, my mum just, I had to edit it. I didn't end up using it, but I was editing it because she like screams out, 
more people die on cliffs than in any other way at sea. <laughs> yeah, she screams, she's screaming. And I, yeah, I packed it all up and went in pretty soon after that. That was, that was actually the dangerous one. But. Um, I'm sort of interested in the brief that you, or firstly, what, in terms of um, curating the show, what's the brief that's given to you and then what is the brief that you give to the artists and do they fulfil the brief? How much editing and, do you, and advice do you have to offer and etc.? So no brief given to me, no brief given to the artists. <laughs> uh, it's a very open procedure. So my brief was um, kind of travel around Australia, see if you can pull together um, some interesting projects that are being made by artists who were within a certain point in their practice, so that might be a reasonably early part of their practice. Um, and for me it was just really important to kind of gather together um, different, like a variety of practice, practices and textures, and there wasn't ever a theme in mind. I met with probably 60 to 70 artists in five different cities around Australia, and it wasn't until after I'd made a short list and until after each of them had kind of pitched their ideas to me that I began to see that there were actually quite strong threads that tied them together. Um, so for the most part, it's a very happy accident that this show has worked out um, relating to one another as well as they all do, um, because it was a very open procedure. There was lots of trust involved. I think mutual trust between myself and the artist and the artist with me. Um, for the most part, they could really do what they wanted. <laughs> um, and the only kind of parameters I gave was, um, was space. So with each of them, I had a fair understanding of what their practice entailed and, and what it was that they might do, or at least the scale of what they might do. So each of them came to Melbourne for a site visit a couple of months before. Um, they needed to really have a solid idea. And at that point, I, would, I knew kind of roughly where I wanted to situate people, um, just kind of so that their work was given enough space. Um, but then the rest of it was up to these guys and it's, yeah, they just resonated well together, which was, which was lucky. Um, my question's for Anna. Um, I, re I really love your work. Um, <laughs> um, how important, if at all, is the materials that you use uh, in their original industrial form? Uh, because with the work that you've got in here, you've got um, you know this beautiful brass in like a you know a fairly standard um, square extrusion kind of thing. Um, yeah. So with your work, do you uh, how important is a transformation from that original form? Um, the the materials essential to it. Um, one one reason is that I can fabricate in brass on a small scale and it behaves, you, can, you solder brass rather than welding it, so it behaves like gold or silver. So I'm very, very familiar with it. And because I work, I mean, I'm not a, uh, I'm, not, I'm no scientist, trust me. So it's really like, it's quite bodily. I just start cutting or I just start working with it. So I'm comfortable with that type of material. So that's on one level essential. Second, secondly, um, it has all sorts of um, aesthetic references that I am deeply attached to. And then additionally, it's conductive. And so in this situation where I wanted to work with um, a sound work, that material has the essential elements that it needs to trigger the sound. So Hamer Marriott, who I worked with, is um, a, an amazing wizard and, um, <laughs> and made a pretty, he made, like, it's, those pieces look so minimal, but the work inside the boxes is just 
incredible. And he designed and made, I guess, essentially seven computers worth of um, electrical engineering. And it's really amazing. And we didn't know at the time if we needed to, we did all sorts of experiments with the brass. Um, and we thought that we had to have it as hollow. We thought we'd have to wire through the brass. So we needed to use a hollow extrusion. So it's practical and, uh, and aesthetic and, yeah, it has all of the things that I need. And I should um, also say I hate using it. It's horrible to work with. It's horrible. So it has to be <laughs> fulfilling all of those other criteria or I wouldn't do it. <laughs> Thank you. Fake question. Sorry. Hi, Anna. Um, you obviously wanted people um, of different abilities to also interact with your work. Can you talk about your decision um, to include, I guess, different sensory elements and, and braille to the wall label? Um, I, I work um, at Craft Victoria in the shop, and um, it's a tiny organisation, and so I also invigilate the gallery to a large degree. Um, and you have no idea how many people touch work. I mean, people who work in galleries would know, but people can't stop themselves from touching work. And if you're in a tiny organisation, there's no alarm system, so the invigilator has to watch. And I just am fascinated by that. Um, so it comes into a whole lot of, um, I guess, uh, academic thinking that's kind of very dry, but I'm just truly interested in people's compulsion to touch objects. And, and you know, that's compounded by what they experience when they touch it, you know, like they get all, that's, it's a reciprocal kind of engagement when someone touches an object. Can I ask a question? Yeah. yeah. Um, you, said that the, you said that there are different um, aesthetic references that you're using. Is there anything in particular that really resounds? Uh, it, I mean, brass, uh, it references gold because it, it is gold in colour, um, but it's an historically sculptural material. Like, it's just a, like, that's very simplistic. It doesn't need to be, um, you know, unpacked on any great level. Bron brass, bronze, they're all, you know, traditional sculpting materials. Um, but it also, it's used heavily in architecture, and because my thought processes um, pertain to to interior spaces on the whole for these installations. Um, I just was thinking about sort of architectural references at the same time. And it's very malleable, so that's quite useful. Like you couldn't, I couldn't get steel to behave like this. I couldn't get iron to behave like this, but I can do that with brass. It's a, it's a pliable kind of metal. I uh, don't know how, if I'm going to word this properly, but it's for Gabriella. Um, in your work, when you, when you talk about like failure and your, your kind of struggle to achieve this, this painting, um, and you were talking about like, I guess, adding on to Annika's question about the weight of other painters and stuff like that, do you kind of see your work as, is there an element that you are trying to like uh, outside of this specific project, do you ever feel like you're trying to create a painting but you're maybe like overwhelmed by the idea of it not being good enough or not being able to match maybe the painters that have come before you so you've set out to do something that you know will inevitably fail? Yeah, um, I really want to be a painter 
there's this, um, what is it, Peter Doig? This amazing painter says, um, who went off to live in, the, who is now living in the Caribbean to escape the rest of the universe, I guess, um, says, if I thought too much about my work, I wouldn't make it. And um, whenever I go to just paint, my mind wanders and I just can't do it and I wish I could. And so there's, yeah. That's the point for your mind. I know, but it doesn't wander in like a constructive way. It like wanders to like, this is shit. Like, it doesn't wander in like a positive way. Just, I can't do it. I wish I was you, Mason. Your paintings are amazing. <laughs> Nothing on them. <laughs> we went to art school and I always loved your paintings. I always loved your paintings. <laughs> we went like upstairs from one another and we'd like go and like pester one another. Yeah. <laughs> Any final questions? Oh. <laughs> Sorry, one more. Um, to my questions for Jacobus. Um, can you please, <laughs> uh, sorry, um, talk to us about your choice of um, rear projection video as opposed to single-sided video uh, as like a sculptural element or how you feel about that? Okay. Uh, Projecting it front on primarily pr probably would have been on wood and I really like the soft surface of fabric and in terms of the, the first work that I did with my father it was taking place in a, a stud work room that I coated in fabric to soften the ambience of the room as well so there was, I kind of wanted to, to acknowledge that as well but just I wanted the, the audience to be allowed to walk through it as opposed to just being static, sitting down and watching something in front of them. There was like, even if they don't get around and move amongst it, which I don't expect them to, there is the option to do that. And it's kind of, it's this observational point that's more, it gives a bit more agency to the audience as opposed to just being static and, and viewing something. Okay, great. Well, could everyone please join me in thanking Annika, Mason, Gabriella, Anna and Jakobus for tonight's talk. <laughs>